Welcome to this production from College Place United Methodist Church. To find out more about our church, please visit our website at www.collegeplaceumc.org. And now, here's our sermon from Rev. Tab Miller. Have you ever felt like you've known someone most of your life, maybe your whole life, a family member, a best friend, and all of a sudden they do something that completely shocks you? And I don't mean something bad. I mean something maybe talented. Like you have a friend who you never heard sing before, and then they sing maybe at a public event, and you're just, wow, how are you not a, a professional by now? They, they show off, and you are genuinely impressed. Well, I was... 10 years old when my little brother was born, and I was there with him every step of the way in his growing up. I took it upon myself because at 10 years old, you're not, you're not just siblings. You know, like Audrey and Tabitha, they have interest in the same TV shows, same toys, that sort of thing. So they, they play together and all that stuff. And I was a lot older than him, so I didn't share in all the common interests as a, you know, at 13 as a three-year-old. Uh, so I helped raise him. Now, my mother would point out, by the way, that she, she would say often, you wouldn't believe that a 13-year-old and 3-year-old could fight. But siblings find a way, right? Siblings find a way no matter what the age difference. And I wasn't the most mature 13-year-old, I'll go ahead and admit. But from an early age, I taught my little brother everything. If you, if you met my little brother, he's like a carbon copy of me. If you talked to us on the phone, you wouldn't know who... who uh, actually, he talked to Natalie one time on the phone and... Anyway, I won't tell you how that went. It was, it was funny. He was flirting with my wife on the phone, and she was going along with it for a while, and then she finally said, Tim? <laughs> so when I was uh, 18, my little brother would have been eight, I was a freshman at Georgia Southern, and I get a phone call from my mom saying, could you run home and take your brother to uh, football practice? It's his first practice, and we won't be able to take him, and he really wants to be there. And it wasn't a big deal. Statesboro's only... 25 minutes from Claxton where I grew up, so I pack a bag for overnight, head home, pick him up, take him to football practice, and the coach says to me when I get there, hey, do you mind sticking around and helping? I don't have a lot of help. And I said, well, I'm not going to be here every week, but yeah, I'll help out tonight. So near the end of practice, the coach says, you know, guys, we don't have a lot of time to do a lot of specialty work, because this is just like, you know, peewee football. So I need to know who here can already kick a football. And my little brother says, oh, I can. And I look over at him and go, what are you talking about? You've never kicked a football in your entire life. He just thinks, well, it's got to be easy. I can do it. So I say, no, 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 you can't. And he says, well, no, I can. So I say, okay, go ahead and make a fool of yourself. Because I know I taught him everything. And I know that my only advantage in sports was I was tall and fast, not coordinated. It takes a lot of coordination to kick a football. And I'll be darned if he didn't kick the most beautiful kick, straight and long, better than a lot of high school players that I know. Well, that was a fluke, I thought. I thought it was a fluke. So a couple years later, when my home church, First Methodist of Claxton, was uh, forming a praise band, they said, who here, uh, the preacher said, who here can play drums? We need a drummer. My little brother said, I can. Now, kicking a football is one thing. Him having one secret talent is one thing. But I said, Tim, you don't know how to play the drums. The last time he had a drum set was at three years old when it was that little plastic thing, you know, he just banged on. And again, I projected myself on him and, you know, I, again, not coordinated. 
you have to independently move all of your limbs when you're drumming, and I end up doing this number right here, like a little crank-up monkey, you know, a little ching, 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 ching. That's all I got. That's as, I got some rhythm, but everything moves. At the, I can't hardly pat my head and rub my tummy at the same time. So it was really impressive when he got up there and he had talent. And as a matter of fact, he's one of the most talented drummers that I know. He's this morning, I think, playing at his church uh, in Statesboro. Sometimes the people we know the most uh, can surprise us. And we seem to project ourselves on our family members and our hometown. And so you probably have someone in your life, either a family member or someone from back home, who went on to do something maybe extraordinary, maybe even got a level of fame. And you've always heard it. You've heard what people say in those moments. They say, can you believe that so-and-so went on to do that and they're from here? They're from Brunswick? They went on to do, why are, we, why are we so surprised that God has put great talent all across this world, even in small places? Jesus was the unassuming son of a carpenter. As a matter of fact, if you really look at the word that we translate to carpenter, uh, it might just mean something like general contractor. It doesn't necessarily mean fine woodworking. It could mean he was a stonemason. It could mean that he just built homes. He was the son of a general contractor. He was not some son of Jerusalem in an elite town, Jerusalem, with all the culture, with all the lawyers, with all the learned rabbis. He was from Nazareth. And as one of his disciples said before meeting him, what good comes out of Nazareth? You know, they look at Nazareth and it had a, uh, archaeological digs suggest that there was probably in its heyday a total of 150 people in that little town. And Jesus grew up there. And so when Jesus comes home to teach his first sermon, or to give really a, a short little teaching message, not really a full sermon, he comes saying something extraordinary about himself, and people are shocked. Maybe we shouldn't be so shocked of their response. We would respond probably the same way. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened upon Him. And He began saying to them, Today the Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of God for the people, God. Thanks be to God. Just to reground us a little bit in the season that we're in, we are in the season of Epiphany. And in the season of Epiphany, we are supposed to allow ourselves to be struck all over again with awe and wonder of Jesus. We're supposed to be learning new things. An Epiphany is a new realization. And so sometimes it takes us learning the same thing over and over, and then it becomes new to us, right? So we go back to some of the well-known stories of Jesus' life. We go back to many beginnings for Jesus. 
to celebrate Epiphany. The first one we went to was the Magi, the first Gentiles seeking Jesus, seeing the awe and wonder that they had in seeing the King of the Jews, the Messiah of Israel. And then we looked at his baptism, his launching into ministry and the Spirit descending upon him and Jesus being proclaimed by John the Baptist as the one who will come and baptize us with spirit and with fire. And then last week we looked at the very public, very first uh, public miracle of Jesus at the wedding of Cana in Galilee, turning water into wine, his sharing with us the surprising fact that God would seek out our happiness and give us joy. And then today we're looking at a prototype, a kind of snapshot of his very first teaching experience. The text says he's been teaching for some time, but this is kind of what it looks like. And here he's doing it at home. And I got to tell you, it's a lot easier to preach in Brunswick than it is to go home to Claxton. I'm going to tell you something a little bit embarrassing about, uh, about myself. But I, I grew up knowing that I wanted to perhaps seek ministry, and, and, and I was thinking about it. And so some nice people in my hometown in Claxton decided to give me a few shots at preaching. I had no preparation. I had no public speaking experience. I had no, really, I had no understanding of Scripture, although I thought I did. And those first sermons were, now looking back, I thought they were awesome, but they were, they were true, truly stinking stinkers. They were just bad. Now, don't get my parents wrong. They didn't tell me this until after I went to seminary and after I found my voice and after I fell in love with the Scripture uh, and after they had already told me, hey, it's not, this is not you now, but we've got to tell you the story. I don't remember exactly which sermon they heard me preach, but it was one of those early before seminary, before even getting out of college, before even a public speaking class. Uh, I, I, they came to one, and my mom said to my dad after it was over, so what would you think? And my dad said, well, I don't know what Tab's going to do with his life, but he ain't no preacher. <laughs> so going back home, knowing I had that reputation, it really, it really was a nerve-wracking thing when I went back and stood in the pulpit uh, for the first time as, as someone in official ministry. Jesus goes home, and they think they know little Jesus. Oh, little Jesus, he's gone off, and he's coming back home, and isn't this cute? He wants to share with us. We're going to give him some time to share. But if they think they know him, he knows his own people. He knows their heart. He knows how they're going to react. He knows that down the road it's not going to go as well as he thought, but he starts with them anyway. Actually, the story that we read actually continues on. We kind of broke before the end of the story. And we see that the reaction uh, is different at different times, if you continue to read, but it's from the same place. They are awestruck by him. They are they're just gobsmacked by Jesus. Now, at first, they go back and they share favorably about him. Jesus, did you hear Jesus? That was really, really interesting. And then only later does he say that a prophet's not welcome in his own hometown. Whatever happened, we all, we all know that that day, whatever he said was unexpected, and they were all shocked. So, what did he say? What is it that knocked them off their guard? It wasn't that Jesus was teaching. As I said, they knew little Yeshua bar Yosef, little 
son of Joseph, Jesus, the son of Joseph. They knew he was going to come and share a little word with them. That He had some aspirations of being a teacher, a rabbi, and they probably thought it was cute. But whatever he said that day shocked them. It took them off guard, and so we need to pay attention to what's going on. The scene actually opens up fairly unremarkably. It wasn't an untypical service. This was like a service any other time in Israel. It wasn't a high liturgical day, meaning that they weren't celebrating some high event in Israel's festivals. It was all taking place on a common Sabbath day, and he does what many readers would do. They're not necessarily hired synagogue officials. Uh, They could be laymen, and Jesus is coming home, so it would be fitting for them to uh, address him and say, you're welcome to come in here and teach. He does exactly this. And then what you do is you, you stand to read the Scripture, and then you sit down to explain it. So Jesus' whole demeanor, nothing about what he's doing, is uncommon for this time. He's handed the scroll of Isaiah. So he's not even... Some, somehow, some scholars think that he may have skipped over some readings and picked what he wanted. It seems that he was very determined to preach this task. But all, the only records we have is that the Torah, the first five books, when you, you had several readings that day on any given Sabbath day. We know the Torah had a calendar reading. Every day had to be specific. But it doesn't, I don't, we don't have any accounts that the prophets had to be that way. So it's not Jesus' demeanor or, or exactly what he's doing, his, his stature, his standing up, his sitting down. It's not the selected readings. I think what it is, is it's pretty obvious. It's his proclamation. His teaching on the text is that this has happened. What your, your long-promised Messiah is me, little Jesus born of Bethlehem, growing up in the backwater town of Nazareth, probably even smaller than Bethlehem, the son of a gentle contractor, Joseph. I'm your anointed Messiah. I'm your king. Yeah, I'm not from Jerusalem. I'm not as learned, uh, or maybe I am, but you don't expect me to be. I'm more talented than you know. I'm more than you'd ever imagine. I am going to actually set the whole world right, put it all back together, and I'm just from you. I'm from, I'm from your neck of the woods. And let me give you a summary of my mission, he says. And then he gives, he reads Isaiah. And they're shocked at the summary of his mission. It's shock, shocking on many levels, and we don't have time to go into it all. And to be honest with you, uh, up until yesterday, I was not going to focus in on what I'm going to talk about today. I was going to take a different tack with this sermon. It's a short message, a short reading, I should say. But it's packed with so much that it could be a series of sermons. And I had to choose what I was going to go with. And I thought earlier in the week that I would go with who Jesus is focusing in on. I don't want to miss out on that. So I want to talk about that really quick. Basically, Jesus says, to sum up my calling, I'm going to read this text. And this is what I've come to do. I have come to serve the least of these, the least of our society, Those in our society that everyone looks down upon, that's who I come to serve. And we have all sorts of people in our society that are despised for all sorts of cultural reasons. If one half of our society props you up because they like you for some reason, because of some sort of label you have upon yourself, if they lift you up, the other half's going to hate you. You can go ahead and guarantee it. In our society, you are pawns in a game if you stand for anything The culture just eats people up and spits them out. We saw this over the last couple of weeks with this uh, farce of a scene that played out with the Native American gentleman and the young man with the MAGA hat on. Whatever you think about these men, this goes to show how silly our culture has been. 
Both sides of the political spectrum latched onto these two guys, made one the enemy of the state and made the other one the hero, the glowing Messiah. It's ridiculous. We make caricatures out of these men. We make caricatures out of them. We reduce them down to the noble native man and the young man who's going to stand up for his beliefs. We boiled it down or the idiot or the idiot. So wherever you fall on this, on this argument, if you've had the argument out, if you've, if you've talked about it, it's fine to have an opinion. But know this, whichever one you've decided is the bad guy, whichever one we've decided needs to be despised, that's the one Jesus is saying, I've come to love. The one that society puts on the margins is the one that I come to love. Find the person you're against and know that they are the ones I want to turn into the royalty of the kingdom of God. So get down at their, at their feet. And wash their feet and be a servant of all. <laughs> you can tell I could get all sorts of worked up over this, right? I did prepare a sermon to go in this direction, but I do want to focus now, now that I've said this, and I feel better, <laughs> I want to look in a little bit different direction, because the opening of the text that Jesus reads here sets an entire precedent for everything. We've already talked about just now who Jesus is going to serve, but the opening lines of this text tell us how he's going to do it. And I think for us, this is about as surprising as it gets. Jesus announces to them, probably the most surprising thing to them is that he is the Messiah, the anointed one. Indeed, the epiphany for them in that moment is that the Messiah has not only come, but I'm sitting right here in front of you. But as I said at the beginning of the service, we've said this for so long that saying Jesus is Messiah sometimes doesn't strike us like it strikes them. It's not as earth-shattering for us proclaiming this some 2,000 years away. What then, perhaps, is the most shocking thing? It's, I think, perhaps, how Jesus says he's going to serve these people. Jesus announces my, his ministry. My ministry is to the poor, those on the economic outs. I am serving the prisoners, those who are legally on the outs. The blind, those who are physically on the outs. The oppressed, those who are politically on the outs. I've come for those on the outs. And we say, yeah, I know this. But then he says how he's going to accomplish it. And hear what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. The Spirit of the Lord has made it possible that I proclaim good news. The Spirit of the Lord has made it possible that I proclaim freedom. The Spirit of the Lord has made it possible that I proclaim recovery. And the Spirit of the Lord has made it possible that I set you free. Is that not shocking? That Jesus is saying that the whole manner by which I will accomplish my ministry is not by my own divine strength, but by the Spirit of God. It's easy to read this and just assume that it's just a reading Jesus is reading and this whole matter of the Holy Spirit is just saying that the Holy Spirit is with Jesus. But that's not what he's saying. He says, I have been anointed by the Spirit. This is a fulfillment of the prophecy. This has happened to me. I have, by the Spirit, been given authority and power. And you may still think, well, why is that so shocking? 
Think about this. I know it's impossible. Let's say you, but that you have a magic bag full of an infinite amount of marbles. So you have an infinite amount of marbles in a bag, right? And I have a similar bag, an infinite, a bag of infinite marbles, and I give you my bag. How many marbles do you have now? You had an infinite amount, and now you have an infinite amount. What, what do I mean by that? With this in mind, as a Christian church, we proclaim that we serve a triune God, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we say it is false to proclaim that Jesus is one-third God. It is false to say that he lacks any power of God. It is false to say that he's not God. It is true and very true that he is fully God and fully man, 100%, nothing less. So why does he need, 100% God, need the Holy Spirit? If you add 100% God to 100% God, you still have 100% God. You don't need any more. But Jesus says, I have been allowed, anointed, empowered, emboldened to go out and do this because the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. We've talked about this some more, but uh, we've talked about this before, I should say, but it does bear repeating. Jesus was born, conceived by the power of who? The Holy Spirit. And John, uh, Peter, uh, John, Peter, and Paul. <laughs> Paul tells us in Romans 8 that when Jesus is resurrected, it was by the power of the Holy Spirit that he's resurrected. He begins his ministry by coming into the world by the Holy Spirit. He's raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit. And then what about all the bits in between? In the waters of baptism, he's anointed by the Spirit descending upon him. When he goes out to face his temptation in the wilderness, the Holy Spirit is the one who thrusts him out and attends him. What about his miracles? What about his miracles? He says in Matthew 12, 28, it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. He does not say, by my own divine strength. So think about this. There are three powers that make God God in our Western society. Uh, omniscience, all-knowing, omnipotence, uh, all-powerful, omnipresence, the ability to be everywhere. We sum up, philosophers sum that up. That's the Almighty God. Is Jesus God? Absolutely. Do we proclaim Him as God? Yeah. But why, then, in the Bible, do we have an account of Jesus sometimes lacking in these three attributes? All-knowing? Well, He says not even the Son knows the day or the hour of His return. Hmm. He grew in wisdom and stature. How did he grow in wisdom and stature? All-powerful? He says he's unable to perform certain miracles in Nazareth. I'm only able to do what the Father does. I can't do anything on my own, he says. I'm powerless. All-present? He tells the disciples, it's better that I go away, that the Spirit comes, because as is, I can only be with you in person, but when he comes, he'll be in you and with you everywhere you go. That kind of tears it all down, doesn't it? Why is this the case? And the gospel here doesn't tell us. It just says that he needs the Holy Spirit to be emboldened. It sets up the parameters for his entire ministry that the Spirit goes with him. And Paul, thank God, explains why. In Philippians, he says, Have this same mind about you that was in Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider his equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage in his earthly life. Rather, instead, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself of his very nature, becoming a slave. A doulos, a slave. Being found in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man like you and me, he humbled himself and became obedient even unto death, death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him 
to the highest place and gave him the name of, that is above all names. See, Paul is pointing out that, yes, Jesus is equal to God, and he had all the privileges of God, but here on this earth, he came to show us the way of human faithfulness in his early ministry, in his earthly ministry. And he shows us the way designed by God for us to walk, which is complete dependence on the Holy Spirit and complete dependence on the Father. This is why he came, to show us how to be obedient. He did not resort to using his own powers because he wanted to show us what it's like to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit because that's what we have to be. He could have caught up his angels at any time and freed himself, but he did not. So as surprising as this might be as an epiphany for Jesus, that Jesus, the Son of God, relied on the Holy Spirit, how much more shocking then should it be for all of us in here that the whole point of him doing so is that he is saying, this is your ministry. This is how you live. I'm showing you the boundaries of your ministry. By proclaiming this over myself, I'm proclaiming it over you because I'm your king. The implications of Jesus' sermon that he is on the mission of the Messiah, and therefore he's the king, means if you follow me, you will follow me into this life. In other words, the reading of Isaiah is as much an indication, an epiphany for us in our own ministry as it is an epiphany for who Christ is. So for those of us who would look at the needs of others and say, you know what, I don't feel called to serve the needs of others. I feel called differently. I would say, no, the summation of Jesus Christ's ministry is to serve those in need. If you don't hear that call, you might not be listening. If he's your king, you will follow him. And he says, this is the boundaries of my mission. I'm summing it up for you. This is the summation of who I am. This is what I'm called to do. We might not all be called to the same needy people. We might not all be called in the same way, although we as a local body should be moving in a similar direction. But we're all a part of the community called to Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I've come to bind wounds. And if you say, no, I'm okay, go bind to other people's wounds. I'm okay, and you're not serving the needs of those who are hurting. Maybe it is your heart that needs, wound, needs healing, actually. Indeed, maybe that's the sickest heart of all. If I am saying, I don't need to serve the needs of others, I'm only about myself, then I have not turned from my sinful introversion into God's selfless, cruciform love. So as the band comes back up, I want to remind us all that it is the Spirit of God that bears witness with our own spirit that we're children of God. And sometimes it can feel like He's a far way away. If we're not listening, if we're not tuned in, we won't have that blessed assurance that He provides. Sometimes we say, well, let's, God will meet you anywhere you are. He'll meet you where you're at, and that's true. But sometimes we aren't going to meet God in His mission. So He's having a conversation with us where we are, but we're not tuned into that conversation. He's talking over here, and we're asking questions over here. Not, not every question that you have needs to be answered. God's not here to satisfy every curiosity. He wants you to Focus in and have the questions that he has for you. Who do I need to serve? Where do I get my comfort from? How do I walk in the Spirit? Surrender yourself to Jesus, and then he'll give you that heart for sure. It's not the work that saves you, but getting on board in the stream of what God is doing draws us into the stream of the Spirit so that we can be attuned to what he's saying. And we're not having some other conversation that he's not having. Because in love... God is love, and with the essence of love, if we're in love, we feel the presence of God. So we meet Him where He is, just as He meets us where we are. So let's now, in this time of worship, 
Meet God where he is. Open your heart to him and say, Jesus, where you'll lead me, I'll follow. I give myself to you now. I long to know you more. May your spirit guide me in all that I do and give me a heart open to hear you so that I might have that blessed assurance and that peace that passes all understanding. This has been a production of College Place United Methodist Church. May God bless you richly upon hearing this message.